Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... I'm talking to former undercover cop Neil Woods about the failure of the war on drugs in his memoir, Good Cop, Bad War. Neil Woods was an undercover cop whose brief was to infiltrate Britain's most dangerous drug gangs. Starting out in the early 1990s and making the rules up as he went along, Neil was at the forefront of police surveillance. He quickly earned a name as the most successful operative of his time and his expertise was called upon by drug squads around the country to tackle an ever-growing problem. But after years on the streets, spending time with the vulnerable users at the bottom of the chain, Neil began to question the seemingly futile war he was risking both his life and sanity for. Good Cop, Bad War is an intense account of the true effects of the war on drugs and a gripping insight into the high-pressure world of British undercover policing, and we're going to talk about it today. Neil, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. So let's talk about how you ended up in the police force in the first place. I dropped out of university, made the daft decision of thinking business studies was an interesting thing to do. So when I dropped out, I was wondering what to do, and some friends of mine had gone backpacking around Europe, so I thought I was going to do that. But then one day I saw um, an advertisement for police in the local newspaper in Buxton. So I thought, well, it occurred to me I, I was after something that was different every day. So either that's going to be backpacking and travelling or or I thought it could be an interesting career. So to make my mind up, I actually flipped a coin and it came up heads, which meant that I applied for the police. So I suppose it was literally a flippant way to decide what to do with your life. But you know, once I actually went into the police, I quite quickly decided you know, I, you know, I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to catch bad guys. Um, so I was quite idealistic, really, when I when I went into the police, I think. And so let's talk about how you ended up working undercover then, because in the in the early days, you're doing both things, which seems like really weird. One day you're there in, in uniform, the next day you disappear. How did you get sort of involved in the first place? Well, I mean, actually, as a uniform cop, I wasn't particularly good at it. I hung on by the skin of my teeth, really. But I was fortunate to get a month's drug squad attachment after about three and a half, four years in the job. And um, they hated having us rookies, the drug squad did, because we just got in the way, we got under feet, we didn't know what we were doing. But I, I learned quickly and I picked up some of the sort of covert policing, so they took to me okay. And then one of them suggested to me one day that I have a go at buying some crack cocaine. So I thought, well, yeah, why not? And so I was given £20 and told the number of a door in this area of Normanton in Derby 
And I went down the street and knocked on the door and this um, huge gangster entered the door and he, he interrogated me a little bit for five or ten minutes, but it was fairly straightforward, really. And I came away with £20 stone of crack cocaine and that sort of defined the next 14 years of my life, really. But you asked about sort of mixing the two jobs. Well, see, to start with, the jobs would be quite short. You know, there'd be a few days at a time and then they would expand to a few weeks. And I'd be doing undercover work for two or three days and then normal uniform work for three and uh, it just ended up being sort of 50 50 to start but you're with. still disappearing for like three days at a time and the key thing here is secrecy right yeah that's right so i was coming back to normal policing and i wasn't allowed to tell anyone what i was doing at all which was quite peculiar really especially as i was sort of i was a young man and having some success i couldn't talk to anyone about it and also there was a there was a fair amount of sort of suspicion and even resentment from hard-working colleagues who they didn't get to go different places every few days and you know and do mysterious things so yeah it was it was a very odd situation but it, it was actually the beginning of this kind of undercover work because it hadn't happened in the UK before I mean basic by bust type of undercover work uh, was a very regular thing in the United States but it had not really happened in the UK there was a much more sort of high level could perhaps call it more sophisticated undercover work that had been going on for quite a long time but the sort of street level uh, work was was really new so as you say I was making it up as I went along really. Why at this point did it begin then what was going on that made it imperative that that sort of that work start? Well right since the misuse of drugs act has happened there's been a constant escalation of the war on drugs and this has come from a sort of combination of various media scares, the newspapers getting excited about it, this prompting politicians to react to that. And this period of time in the early 1990s was a classic intense sort of drug scare about crack cocaine. It was in the newspapers all the time. Lots of very racist coverage in the newspapers as well. So you'd have a sort of Mail on Sunday story about some white girl who was corrupted by crack dealers in the inner city. And there was lots of this going on. And the, this meant that there was a lot of pressure from the Home Office onto police forces, to police areas, to do something about the crack cocaine problem, as it's seen, seen as this massive epidemic. And so there was lots of investment into drug squads. Drug squads were the most seasoned detectives. They had the best kit. They had unlimited overtime. Drug squads were growing all over the country and they became the sort of elite workforce in the police. Secretive, zooming around in posh cars, secret military encrypted radios. This is before anyone had mobile phones, of course. And um, yeah, so it was it was a combination of media frenzy and politicians pressure and lots of money. And at this time, you're perfectly positioned for this because you're into your music and you're into clubbing and things. So you're, you're the right person to get into that scene. Yeah, I suppose so. Although I always saw the uh, the street crack cocaine and heroin scene as completely separate to what was going on culturally. Uh, because, I mean, I, yeah, I used to go clubbing. I used to go to the Hacienda and I used to go to the different clubs. And, you know, I could I could see what was going on. But I saw, I didn't see any negatives, really, about the culture that was going on and the growth of dance music. I, you know, the music was fantastic. It really was. But the inner cities where the gangsters operated, they were strictly dealing in crack and heroin. So certainly at the beginning, I mean, I did do some club jobs later on, but certainly at the beginning, it was just about the, the streets, really. But of course, the you know the government, the Daily Mail, the, the presumably the higher-ups of the police, they didn't see that distinction. Well, no, they didn't. And I was encouraged to do, and I did, yeah, I did quite a few club jobs. But it was it was interesting because having started to do heroin and crack... To then be asked to do clubs, it, it felt a bit strange. And 
I, I sort of questioned it, but what, why are we going after people just who are going to a club dancing? But the way it was portrayed to me, and they did have a point, is that increasingly, as each day went on, it was the same organised crime groups that were taking over the, the control of drugs in the clubs. And generally, the, the OCGs, the crime groups, were connected to the door staff. And it was all a very organised affair. And increasingly, of course, that drug supply was controlled with violence. So that is why, really, I was quite happy to go and work in the clubs because, again, it, it was hunting gangsters and that, that's what I was about, really. You mentioned that your type of undercover work, the sort of buy-bust work, was was relatively new. So really, you're making it up as you go along. It's quite a Wild West world within the undercover world at the same time as well. Of course, this is roughly the same time that people are infiltrating political groups and you, Mark Kennedy's and whatever are forming relationships. Basically, there's not there's not rules, is there? Well, between 93 and 96, there was no rules for this, what became known as Level 2 undercover work. The Level 1, as, as I described as being more sophisticated undercover work that had been going on gone on a while there were parameters and set procedures and even stated cases which sort of defined how that work should be carried out and i helped design some of the uh, training for level two undercover work which involved having some level one trainers involved as well and it was decided that you know any any undercover work fell under the same parameters so so as part of the training the stuff that i helped design was about the street craft and and how to survive that kind of thing but also a lot of it was that learning the stated cases and that defined how an undercover police officer should behave so so really it did follow the rules but those first few years you know on the streets we were still finding our feet and and definitely it was the wild west and made lots of mistakes as well of course I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You talk about a few early cases in the book, early busts that you did in Undercover Work, but the one I wanted you to go into in a... We'll talk about a few of the um, of the operations as we go along, but I want to start with the one in a place called Clown, which is outside of Sheffield. Oh, yeah. Uh, tell, us about, tell us about that operation. Ah, oh, well, Clown was an interesting one. There's a bit of a background to this one in that... The drug squad that I knew well and had worked with, because I had a few more attachments with them and did some surveillance with them as well, they had been chasing a particular gangster. And what interrupted their surveillance was that this particular one, a guy, uh, had got shot. He was from Chesterfield, and I think he'd been shot six times. It was quite dramatic, and he had an armed guard in the hospital. The head of this organised crime group was from Sheffield, the one who'd actually carried out the hit or ordered it. He was taking over the supply into Derbyshire and he was seen as an absolute target number one for, for the drug squad, for the region really. And so I was sent in, having had some success and with a variety of operations, I was sent into Clown to see if I could just find something out about him, to try and infiltrate the, the perimeters, the edges of that particular organised crime group because he had relatives in Clown. So... I just did the wandering into a pub routine and playing pool with people and just getting to know people, which is quite a quite a lonely feeling thing when you're on your own, especially in a place like Clown. It's like um, it's uh, definitely something that had fallen, place that had fallen down on its luck. It was an old mining town. I think I think it, actually it was built to house people who worked in in mines. So it was very working class, um, very down on its luck with the closure of mines and everything. And pretty rough, to be fair. So in this pub, there was lots of rough characters. And I, I think it was the second occasion I went in there and I got playing pool with this guy. And we just got chatting and playing pool against each other. And I just happened to mention that I was after some Charlie. 
And he says, oh, yeah, I can hook you up with that. So we went to his uh, we went to his house and interesting, we took a really circuitous route because he was collecting aluminium cans from the floor and bins to weigh them in for scrap. And when we went into his house, they, they, were, they were piled up right to the ceiling. He, he, he explained that you have to collect in, like enough to make it worth it, otherwise the scrappy won't talk to you. So he, and he says, yeah, he makes, actually makes a living collecting cans. And I've never heard the like, actually, or since. But, um, but anyway, I digress. So he put a phone call in, in a telephone box, and says, yeah, I can, uh, I can sort you out. And he did. But then as he was talking, I, he mentioned this guy. Now, this is tricky because I know people by names and some of them in the book are real names and others have been changed to pseudonyms because the lawyers insisted on it. I think in the book it's Hal. It is. Yeah. It is. Oh, great. I remembered one of the names. Yeah. So um, so the pseudonym of this particular character is Hal. And he mentioned Hal. And obviously, my ears pricked up. So I said to him, I know someone who could do with a new connect. He's having some some uh, problems. He runs some uh, some free parties, that kind of thing. Um, you know, could he lay, do as a sample? And he says, yeah, yeah, no worries, man. I'll connect you. I've got the best connections. It's my cousin. And so he ended up introducing me to this Hal person for the second time I went. And he was very suspicious of me. And um, I said, well, yeah, I mean, I'm after a kilo, to be fair. Obviously, very suspicious, you know, never met me before. I'm suddenly talking enormous weights. I says, but I'd want to test it first. Can you do as an eight ball? And he says, uh, yeah, all right. You know, there's the right kind of weight to go for as a sample. And he arranged for that and we did the exchange. Anyway, I was getting on with this guy really well and I think I'd, I had allayed his suspicions really well. So I arranged with him. He was happy with the connect. The eight ball came back as ridiculously strong proof of a really good connection and so I went back to the drug squad and they were all very excited about it and I explained to them I said look he's going to have to see the flash money first he won't even talk to us anymore until he's seen the money so let's arrange it let's get the money I'll introduce bomb damage who can play my sort of gangster mate who I'm who I need the connect for this is another guy on the this is another guy in the drug squad yeah and uh, and they said, yeah. They said, right, but the thing is, we need a signal just in case. And I said, okay, in case of what? In case he's got the drugs with him. I said, you've got several thousand pounds in a brown envelope. He's not going to do anything until he's seen that money. He's not going to bring the drugs with him. Trust me, you don't need a signal. And they said, yeah, yeah, but but, but just in case, we'll have a signal. Oh, I'm looking at the floor thinking, well, I wish, just, wish they'd just listen to me. This is This is a bit daft. We've got a long way to go yet. So bomb damage says, oh, well, yeah, if he's got the drugs, I'll put my hand out of the car and tap it on the top of the car. So I thought that I've got a bad feeling about this. But anyway, the meeting went ahead. I went to meet Hal and um, he had a child in a pushchair, oddly. And so we went to the car, met up with bomb damage. who was waiting. I introduced them. I was left with a pushchair with a young child in. And, uh, and then as they got in, I saw bomb damage put his hand on the car and tap the top of the car i'm thinking no no you idiot knowing that there was no drugs in the car and then it occurred to me as i saw him do it he always does that the guy's six foot four that's that's his resting position he's chosen his resting position for the strike signal i can see drug squad cops running literally from all points of the compass towards us i I try and wave stupidly wave my arms to them it must have looked like i was just flapping or flapping at flies or something and uh, they just ran past me and they did the full strike, you know, their sort of 
shouting and dragging him out of the car and the, and then the young toddler starts screaming because his trusted relative is being dragged out of the car by big burly police officers in plain clothes of course and yes the entire thing was a disaster and this chap this gangster was possibly the biggest gangster in that entire region of the UK at that time and uh, yeah they'd blown it completely so yeah it's it's uh, there was lots of mistakes along the way but i suppose that one really yeah, sticks in the mind quite a lot well it it turns out that a lot of the examples i want to talk about end in end, if not exactly the same way but, but sort of similar ways and and you mentioned that the pub in in this story and this next one all takes place in the pub the lord stanley in Whitwick, which is a small town midway between derby and leicester this pub sounds like like a something out of a film I know. I, when this job was sold to me and they told me about the intelligence, I just I just didn't believe it at all. I thought, you know, because cops quite often exaggerate. You know, they talk up a job, so you have to be aware of when someone's doing it. So I didn't believe it until they showed me the intelligence and the, the previous convictions of all the people that were frequenting this place. Now, I should paint a picture. that This is a really sleepy village in Leicester. It's got detached posh houses and a nice, what you would expect to be a nice country pub. But it wasn't at all. Every single person that frequented that pub was a criminal, primarily from Leicester, but also from Derby and sometimes from Birmingham, travelling criminals. It, it was absolutely insane. I've never seen anything like it. The landlord, poor guy, I think just um, it was just completely out of his control, really. But um, yeah, so I was sent in because a lot of the it was, place was run by this particular guy. And again, I've lost the pseudonym for it. I don't uh, say the Alec, yeah, I don't want to say the real name of this one. Yeah, so Alec ran the place. He was an um, antiques burglar. He was into this, the most incredibly intricate racket of stealing cars, where he got his team to steal uh, the petrol cap from a car. And it was around the time when the car technology was just starting, so the newest cars had like modern security on the key. But he had a contact in the car industry, so that if you took, stole the petrol cap, you could get a key made, which did the ignition and the security. And he had this incredible system where he remembered where all the cars were exactly, the makes and models. And he had like dozens of cars in his head and all the keys ready to go. And he would wait several weeks so the theft of the car wasn't connected with the theft of the petrol cap. Brilliant mind he had, really. So I was in there to arrange to buy stolen cars. and But he was also running cocaine. He was selling masses of these pills, which were sold as MDMA, but were actually just ketamine and ephedrine. So he was sending all sorts of stuff. So we gathered evidence against a lot of different people. But it was clear he was running quite a varied business there. And this is one of the mistakes I made again early on, is that I stupidly made myself out to be a connoisseur of amphetamines, which clearly I'm not. But I had learned that when you move in circles, you need something to talk about. And a lot of people would talk about drugs. So, you know, made myself out to be this connoisseur. And this particular evening there, he indicated one of his lackeys to give someone a beating over a £10 debt that hadn't been paid. And you could see he was in quite an aggressive mood. Anyway, then he handed me this present. He said, I've got a present for you. And he held up this bag with this pink sticky goo in it. And you could almost see it dissolving the plastic in front of your eyes. It was this, It was very toxic looking. And the, the stink, it was like the urine from a glue-sniffing cat. It, it was just revolting. Anyway, he said, I've got this for you. Bet you've never had speed like this before. And I looked at it thinking, no, I'm sure I haven't. I says, go on then, have some. And 
I had that moment's hesitation, which in undercover work, when you're living a lie, a slight hesitation, can you can see the reflection that you created in suspicion in someone's face very quickly and instinctively. And so I knew I'd caused myself a problem and I knew I had to be taking some of this this amphetamine. So I dipped my finger in and put it in my tongue. I could almost feel the mouth ulcer appearing instantly. And he said, no, that's not enough. So I had some more. That hit me fairly quickly and... It was horrific, to be honest. It was the most appalling anxiety. And I didn't sleep for three nights. It was horrendous. I had to be driven home. Someone else had to drive my car home. Mind you, my house has never been tidy, I have to say. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Neil Woods, and we're talking about his book, Good Cop, Bad War. And, Neil, we talked about a couple of um, operations before we broke, and then I want to I go on to talk about some more, but there's a few things that sort of happen at this point, one of which is that you become a detective. But also, you come to this realisation that things are starting to, to get more serious, shall we say. Yeah, well, gangsters go to prison, and they talk to each other. So whereas they were quite naive in 1993, they quickly became not naive. And so things became more difficult. So these kind of operations that started off in 93 as by bust, they became really involved in intricate undercover operations, which went on for months and months. And so, yeah, I was a detective, but then I was away for six months at a time doing these kind of work, six or seven months sometimes. And it became clear... I mean, I, I knew very early on from undercover work that the war on drugs was lost. The idea of actually winning it was ridiculous. But I still carried on doing the work because I was catching bad guys and that's what I was about. That that's you know, I was fighting the good fight. But one one of the things that became much more difficult to do is because gangsters were savvy to it, I had to manipulate people on the street in much more intricate ways and really develop my marks to introduce me to the people I wanted and I had to it was a much more intricate game. And that involved really manipulating some quite vulnerable people. But again, the end justified the means to me. Uh, I, I could tell you about a particular one in Leicester, because you're, yeah. you're from Leicester. Yeah, you? and I, I want to I get us on to Leicester, really. That's where I'm coming to, because this is, I think, the first operation where it seems, I want to suggest that the previous ones weren't serious, but the violence ratchets up here and the stakes seem to ratchet up. So, yeah, so please, I presume you're going to tell us about Ali. Yes, Ali was, um, he was a great 
person. He was such lovely company. And of all the all of the street people, you meet lots of lovely people on the streets. But Ali was homeless, and I met him. He was selling the big issue, and he was brilliant at it. He had this lovely manner with everyone. He remembered everyone's name. He went past, and he could pass a joke with everyone. He was just good company, and he was good at selling the magazine. And so I, I used him a lot for connects and introdu- introductions to people. But he had a fascinating story. He came from Scotland and he'd got into heroin at quite a young age and he did a bit of dealing up there. But he managed to get out of it. He managed to get off heroin and he decided to come, go away from all his contacts so he wasn't tempted and, and move away to London. In hindsight, perhaps London wasn't the best place for him to go because it didn't take him very long before he got back into the heroin scene and he was addicted once more to heroin. And like so many people who are users, they get press-ganged into dealing for organised crime groups and and he started dealing quite a lot. Anyway, he was busted, arrested by the police in London and he was caught with a couple of thousand pounds worth of heroin. He got three and a half years in prison but he kept his mouth shut, he didn't grass anyone up. So he did quite well with three and a half years really. When he came out, the people whose heroin he had been selling said to him, well you owe us four grand now you know, with interest and it's going up so that you need to find it. And he said, no, I know how it works. You know, I used to deal in Scotland. If you keep your mouth shut, debts are forgotten. That's the way it works. That's, you know, that's why we keep our mouth shut. And they said, oh, no, that's not the way it works. If you owe us money, you owe us money and that's it. And he says, no, I'm not doing that. That's not right. So what they did to him is they bundled him into the boot of a car and they took him to a disused warehouse and they tied him to a chair and they stood around him while they slowly dripped acid onto his knees which destroyed the tendons and the front of his legs. And then they, they left him. Obviously, someone found him later on, but when I came across him, he permanently had lost the use of his legs, so he walked around on crutches. He'd escaped London, travelling up the country, and he just got stuck in Leicester, um, and he'd been stuck there a while. It's just selling big issue and, and living in squats. But he was he was a lovely guy. But he was a victim of the way that the drug war develops, because it's true that in the past, you know, it would have been the done thing that if you keep your mouth shut, the debt's forgotten. But as organised crime has developed, as the war on drugs has developed, the most successful organised crime groups, the most successful gangsters are the ones who are the most terrifying. So they have to create this reputation. They can't let a debt slide. They have to punish for it. Because it's an arms race with no chance of de-escalation. So the police keep trying harder. And so... The gangsters have to reciprocate and try harder back. And so it it creates this sort of urban Darwinian soup where police more likely catch the low-hanging fruit and the ones that are left taking additional business and growing are those crime groups who can be the most terrifying because the most successful defence against police informants, people grassing them up, or undercover cops like me, is to completely intimidate an entire community. So the most successful groups are the scariest. So this escalation created by police tactics and developing tactics is what's making our communities more dangerous. And as I said, I'm from Leicester. I've actually lived on, on the estate where this is taking place. I feel so this would have been in, I think, about 96 and 97, and I think you're talking about the early 2000s here. And this operation basically is, I guess, the first time where you're coming up against somebody with, like, international links... Yeah, absolutely. Although I didn't know that at the time, actually. But, I mean, the calibre of gangsters, and they were certainly a lot nastier, and there was two competing groups uh, in the high fields. And they were just, they were so aggressive. 
they were really, really aggressive. And there's always this constant air that you might be subjected to just some random violence. And, and that was that was the atmosphere, especially in Highfield. It was I pitied the young mothers walking around the streets of Highfields. I really did. You saw them just cowed down and, and nervous pushing a pushchair with young children because it wasn't a nice place to be at all. And the, the council had developed these... Um, they'd, they'd done a sort of quite a fancy job of building these children's playgrounds in, into the sort of structure of the old terraced inner-city housing, but they were just where the drug dealing went on. You didn't see any kids in there. The whole six months, I never saw any kids in the playgrounds. So, yeah, it was quite vicious, and it... But there was one particular guy who, because there was various strands to this operation, but there was one particular guy that we were after in this um, this tower block. And my introduction to him was the um, Montserratians. There was, there was a group of Montserratians who, who, who had been moved, evacuated from the island and they lived there. They were a lovely bunch generally. Actually, they were really nice people and they'd sit around and play guitar and sing songs and stuff. But... Uh, you know they were they weren't didn't have any jobs and they were on the streets and they were just got in, involved in a lot of it and one of them through one of those got an, an introduction to someone else who eventually took me to this guy in this um, in the flats and you'll probably know you'll probably know where these flats are um, you know the pedestrian area which is the opposite side of the train station so you walk downhill at the very bottom of there you can turn right to go to the inner towards the inner ring road you just turn right there and it's, it's like um, and there's some some concrete posts that they'd sit on and to the right there and there's, there's a block of flats just there and I was taken in, in there one day to score off this character and the guy that was running leading me in there he took me into this lift and he suddenly started getting nervous he said uh, you're all right yeah I thought he, he's bottling it here he's getting really nervous and I says yeah I'm all right you know I'm all right and I, he just sort of started to settle down and the lift opened he was getting really nervous he was thinking I shouldn't be doing this but he knocked on this door and um, this guy opened the door with this, this ridiculously raw patois that originated somewhere in, in the Caribbean. But he, this, this accent was really cutting. And I thought he was just going to just stab me or something. He was so aggressive. Anyway, he grilled me for a while and eventually I scored off him. But this was, this was really interesting. This is where the international connection came in because around that time there was a big shift in the, the use of adulterants, which were used in crack cocaine. And the great innovation was the fact that benzocaine actually freebased in the same way that uh, cocaine did. So your adulteration could move from the hydrochloride into the freebase, and you're not... Because what happened before is the adulterants that you would put in would be washed away in the crack-making process, which loses your money. So there was various things, various um, adulterants that people were using in the making, making of crack. But there was one route of crack is that was actually happening abroad and being imported in, as opposed to being domestically made in people's microwaves and cooker tops. And it turned out that the, the crack that this guy sold me was actually linked to an international network of crack. So he was a really big hitter, really, really connected. And this was this was just from sort of weeks of painstakingly trying to get myself a, an intro to this guy. So, yeah, I mean, he was obviously... I never really figured out... Um, they never told me where this threat came from, but for the trial for him, when I went to Crown Court, they had um, a full counter-surveillance team following my car to make sure I wasn't followed. So I know that's the, I think that's the only time I ever had that. So, yeah, he must have been... They, they seemed nervous when I asked them, like, why, what, what intelligence have you had to say that, to, to do that? Oh, don't worry about it. They obviously didn't want to make me nervous with the Crown Court case. 
I'm Emma Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. There is a couple of times in the whole of this Leicester operation where basically your cover is pretty much blown. You know, you're you're in real danger. Yes. Well, there was one particular one. One gangster who I'd met very early on, and I hadn't seen anything of him for about four months. I'd never got any footage of him because you only ever wear a camera once you've got completely comfortable with someone. And we needed footage of him. We weren't even sh- completely sure of his identity. But we knew he was he was um, quite tasty. So I arranged to meet him by... Because he was, he, he was lying low. So I arranged to meet him by offering him some counterfeit clothing. I got hold of some counterfeit clothing from Customs and tempted him out. The trouble is he brought two of his mates with him who didn't know me and were really, really suspicious. We met in this car park in I think it was a Burger King car park right at the back of it there was no one else around and when we met he said um, well do you just want to sell me these clothes or are you after something so I says well if you carry in white I'll have some white so Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and protecting potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 